APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On March 26th, we recorded a video dialogue with Todd Norwood, Samantha Norwood, Ellen Morello, Sarah Gallagher, and Christian Tate on the implementation of telehealth in your practice. Here's that discussion. All right, I actually am going to kick it off. This is Ellen Morello. I am the Senior Clinical Program Manager at Cesera. Uh, Cesera is a telehealth physical therapy company. We have a nationwide network of physical therapists who have been practicing telehealth. Um, and uh, my role is to, to manage some of our clinicians, and I have been practicing in a telehealth environment for over two years, um, pretty much exclusively in a telehealth environment. I am very pleased to be presenting with some amazing clinicians who have been practicing telehealth in various uh, practice settings, and you are going to learn from each of them how they are implementing this in each of their specialty areas, including orthopedics, uh, women's health, and uh, neurologic PT and um, pediatrics. So we're going to get a, a nice overview of clinical implementation strategies uh, from these experts. I am just going to kick us off with some general basics about telehealth and um, general guidelines about telehealth. Uh, just a few quick disclosures that myself and Todd are shareholders in Physera, and uh, Sarah is the owner of Tell Sally Physical Therapy. Uh, each presenter will give a little bit of an introduction on themselves as they get to their section. So some learning objectives today are to describe the differences in clinical reasoning and patient management between in-person and telehealth. I think a lot of you are perhaps new to telehealth um, and are trying to understand how do I how do I do these normal things that I would do um, in person in a telehealth environment. Uh, we're also going to chat about determining patient appropriateness. Um, there are some patients that might not be a good fit. Of course, this is a unique environment where we are trying to serve people that might otherwise not be a good fit for telehealth because of the, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, but we will talk about some, some general guidelines for, for making sure the patients get the, the correct care. Um, there will be a, an evidence review. Each clinician will be talking about some evidence to support the use of telehealth in their area. Um, and then best practices for implementation of telehealth in each specialty. So these are just some general basics. I'm gonna kind of quickly give you a lay of the land of, of telehealth. Um, obviously, this, is, this webinar was called uh, at this present time because due to the COVID-19 um, public health crisis, a lot of clinics are closing down, and we really need to be able to continue care for, for all of these patients um, that, that still require PT services. Um, so I really encourage a lot of you to look at the resources that the APTA has already provided on coronavirus. Um, and there, there's also a number of resources on telehealth uh, on the APTA website, so please take a look at those. Um, but telehealth is an excellent solution to prevent uh, the spread of COVID-19, uh, given that, you know, you aren't exposing multiple people. So if you have patients that are, are good candidates, um, this is the best time to, to implement telehealth. There is a large body of evidence to support that telehealth is an Telehealth PT is, um, is just as effective as in-person care in certain situations. So 
Uh, each specialist will be talking about some, some evidence to support the use of telehealth in their specialty area. Um, there is a lot of references at the end of this deck as well that uh, I encourage you all to review, but the evidence is there. Um, and so we're really excited to see more and more clinical research coming out to support the use of telehealth. Uh, and we all know early access to PT is wonderful for our patients. So telehealth just uh, enables that early access to care, that convenience access to care, which can reduce opiate use and, and other high-cost healthcare utilization. So, um, you know, I don't think I need to preach to any of you guys why early PT is better. Um, but I will talk a little bit about why telehealth improves access and therefore enables us to get um, more uh, PTs, get PT earlier. So this was a uh, chart that one of our data scientists, Dr. Zara, put together uh, outlining where PTs are located in the country per 1,000 people. Um, so in the, the darker blue areas, that's where there is um, more PTs for the, the population. So what you'll see here is that there are areas of the country where there's just not enough PTs to serve the, the population. So we did an analysis imagining what would happen if we were to, say, hire 10 PTs to practice telehealth in each state. And as you'll see, that closes a lot of those gaps. Um, so with just 10 remote PTs in each state, we can really start to access some of those people who otherwise wouldn't be able to get care. Um, and you know, it's not just a physical proximity thing. Sometimes it's a convenience thing. People just don't have time to get to the clinic multiple times a week. And in this present environment, um, people are, are unable to get to the clinic for public health reasons um, and for their safety concerns. Uh, so just some brief definitions, uh, telemedicine. Um, most commonly we're using telehealth. Telemedicine is kind of more reserved for, for physicians. Um, telehealth seems to be the common term. Telerehabilitation is another term that we sometimes use, which can encompass other rehabilitation services. Um, most of the legislation refers to uh, it as telehealth, so that, that tends to be the most commonly used term. There are various delivery modes, which are synchronous, which is when you and the patient are meeting real time over video. There's asynchronous modes where you may um, have a message to review later and that you respond to um, or, or other modes of communication that you can review at a later time and respond to. There's also remote patient monitoring in which maybe you are collecting data about um, a patient's pain level and then reviewing that at a later time and monitoring that patient remotely. And then there's hybrid modes, which may have some technology-enabled services in, con in conjunction with um, in-person care. All right, so in this present environment, the rules and regulations are changing on a day-to-day -day basis um, because of the public health crisis, I think. It's really wonderful to see the legislators and, um, and local governments really stepping up to enable people to access care in this, in this public health crisis. So um, that being said, I, I will give you an overview of general rules and regulations, but I encourage you all to check with your, your local and state 
um, guidelines for up-to-date information because, it, as I said, it is changing on a day-to-day -day basis right now. Um, so in a typical world, uh, the provider must be licensed in the state where the patient is located. Um, so, and, and if you have a, a state license in that state, you have to abide by the State Practice Act in that state. Um, so that being said, the State Practice Act may have specific rules and regulations surrounding um, the use of telemedicine, uh, and you, you would have to abide by that, um, abide, abiding by direct access laws in that state as well. Um, the Center for Connected Health Policy has an overview of each state laws. Um, again, these are changing very, very rapidly. A lot of states are waiving um, some of the requirements. For example, Connecticut just recently waived the requirement to even hold a license in Connecticut to treat some of their patients because they realized that the, the patient, they just need to uh, beef up their provider list so that they can serve their population in this time of crisis. Um, other states that previously had stricter regulations on telehealth are now allowing um, telehealth evaluations. So uh, again, it is, it is changing ongoing in this environment, but please check with your state practice acts and your, your local governments for anything up to date. Um, and, and really trying to make sure you are licensed in a state where the uh, patient is located. Um, you obviously want to respect HIPAA uh, as well. That just doesn't mean just a HIPAA compliant software, but also a HIPAA compliant service location. You don't want to be in a public place taking a call with a patient um, and potentially revealing their information. Uh, and obtaining informed consent is important. Uh, you probably want to identify yourself, your credentials, uh, and make sure you're properly identifying the patient. Um, you might want to check with your malpractice insurance to make sure that telehealth is covered. And uh, just practicing in your personal scope of practice is something you should be doing in person and out of person. Really, the, the truth of the matter is that you are held to the same standards of care that you would be held to in person. Just because you're, you're practicing virtually doesn't mean, um, you know, you should be treating all that much differently. Uh, I... Uh, so personal scope of practice means I am not going to be treating someone um, that is not in my specialty area. If I believe this is out of my scope, um, I will certainly make sure to refer them elsewhere. Um, so just keeping that in mind uh, is, is important. Uh, one great thing is that we do have the PT Licensure Compact that is enabling us to get multi-state licenses much easier. Um, so again, making sure you're licensed in the state where the patient is located. If you are in one of these compact states, um, that means you are eligible to get the other licenses through a compact privilege, um, and then you can uh, enhance the, the scope of individuals that you're able to treat. Um, the first and foremost thing in order to practice telehealth is having a good, stable internet connection. And I, I suggest if you're doing it over Wi-Fi, you run some speed tests to make sure you have a stable connection. Um, you want to ensure that you have a quality camera and microphone and that the patient has a quality camera and microphone. For the most part, most computers that are made, you know, semi-recently have great enough quality, um, and the same goes for, for most smartphones. Um, I haven't run into that issue too much. 
There is a link out here um, to some HIPAA compliant software that uh, the APTA recently released. Um, so making sure you, you have a nice HIPAA compliant software, there is a ton on the market, um, and there's a lot of great ones that are really cost effective too, um, that enable that video um, and that, that, that patient interaction in a safe uh, and protected way. If you use any additional software, faxing or e-faxing or document sharing or anything else um, to manage your practice, you want to make sure that you have a, a business associate agreement to protect all of that um, protected health information. Um, and then, you know, you will also need a, an EMR to document any care that you provide. So I know a lot of you have questions about billing. Um, so this, in this session, we are not going to go into um, too much detail about billing because each insurer has different uh, regulations. In the uh, public health crisis we are seeing now, a lot of insurers are moving towards paying and reimbursing for um, uh, for telept services. So uh, uh, a lot of clinicians will recommend that you have the patient contact their carrier just to verify that their plan would cover this. Um, so that that is our recommendation. Uh, we also, uh, certain states also have parity, which means that the, st the state level is saying that the insurers must pay for telehealth services at the same rate as in-person services. Um, there are some billing modifiers that are out there. There's either a 95 or GT modifier, which indicates that service was synchronous. There's a GQ modifier for asynchronous service. Um, in your, your claim, you would put that the location of service was O2 for other. Um, and then the new Medicare e-visits has a, a CR catastrophic um, release, uh, catastrophic relief modifier. Um, and so the, the Medicare uh, e-visits are a relatively new um, thing, which is not telehealth. Um, it is not a, a video visit that is um, what the CMS is uh, paying e-visits for. E-visits are more of um, like a consultative uh, patient communication type of code. Uh, so it, that being said, a lot of information is rapidly changing, so I really suggest that you take a look at these various resources. Um, starting with the CDC for, for local guidelines on, on preventing the spread of coronavirus. We think that is the utmost importance at this, at this time um, in keeping yourselves and your patients very safe, um, and hopefully telehealth will enable you to do that. Um, the APTA has wonderful resources on telehealth. I know state chapters have really stepped up and gotten involved. I was just um, Speaking with the Arizona State Chapter this week, as, um, the, the legislation there was changed and the, the Arizona State Chapter did a beautiful job advocating for PTs to be included in, in the telemedicine provisions. Um, so state chapters are, are wonderful resources as well. The Center for Connected Health Policy usually has up-to-date information about state-by-state -state regulations. Um, the American Telemedicine Association has a tele-rehabilitation special interest group. Um, FSBPT will have uh, information about the compact and about the uh, licensing requirements. Um, making sure you know your state-level practice boards in every state that you are licensed and serving patients is really important. 
Um, and I also recommend the APTA's first counsel or um, the HPA has a telehealth, uh, or in the technology SIG, there is a telehealth uh, group as well. So those are some fantastic resources for any additional information you are seeking as you begin your journey into telehealth. Now I'm going to hand it over to Todd to talk about implementing telehealth in orthopedic practice. Hello, I'm Todd Norwood. I'm Director of Clinical Services at Federa, where I work alongside Ellen. Um, I'm a board-certified clinical specialist in both orthopedics and sports physical therapy, so I'm going to talk a little bit today about uh, implementing telept in orthopedic setting. That said, the material that I'm going to go over today by no means is intended to make you an expert. At the end of the day, really, it's practice and applying the things that you've learned, the things that you've been practicing in your traditional practice for years into this new setting. So I'll give you some tips and tricks and hopefully some things that will be able to jumpstart your ability to provide a really high level of care for your patients over telehealth in this challenging time. And, and hopefully it's some things that you'll continue to provide uh, to your patients over time through telehealth. So for me, the first thing when I got into this uh, many years ago was, is telehealth PT really an evidence-based practice? That was a very important question that I had to answer for myself. And so if we look at the components of evidence-based practice, I'm just going to break them down one at a time. And so, you know, does our clinical experience and our expertise apply? Absolutely in telehealth. Our clinical reasoning, our pattern recognition, I would argue that those may be one of our most valuable tools from an assessment standpoint when we're treating patients in this fashion. Um, and from a treatment standpoint, patient education, therapeutic exercise, I think also give incredible therapeutic value to our patients you know, both in person and, of course, in this setting as well, and I'll go over some research later uh, that discusses this. Can we use the best available evidence? Um, without question, there are some limitations in telehealth. Uh, we may not be able to use the most sensitive or specific exam measures. Um, of course, manual therapy is not in play at all. Uh, however, in the in-person setting, our skills and even our practice acts sometimes limit our ability to deploy certain tools. So I'm based in California, and in California we can't do dry needling. So if I have a patient in front of me in the clinic and there's good evidence that I should do dry needling for them, I can't do that because of my practice act, where somebody in a different state may be able to. So obviously I have to choose a different tool to use to treat that person. And that's the same thing that happens here. So we'll, we do the best that we can, but sometimes we may not be able to apply the very best evidence. Uh, and then the patient's pre uh, preference. So convenience access, uh, meeting the patient where they are. I think one of the biggest things, especially in this time, is safety and reducing exposure and risk for patients who are in these high-risk categories when it comes to COVID-19. Um, now, at the same time, if telehealth is inappropriate or if telehealth isn't really what that patient is looking for, we have that responsibility as providers and as professionals to make sure that we refer them on to the right person who can provide the care that patient really needs. So I'm just going to walk you through sort of the exam process and, and the, just getting the information and the data from the patient so that you can make the best decisions and sort of how I think about it. Um, so with an intake, we have fabulous ways to send out information and get information back from our patients. Um, many of these different tools can be used to set up and send the surveys that we want. Uh, the only thing I would caution you is to make sure that um, you're – not overwhelming the patient with the number of things you're asking them on an intake. So in that case, 
Um, I think demographic information is super important, and it's something we shouldn't ignore. I mean, we maybe take it for granted, oh, we have a 54-year-old male. But that's super important when you think about risk factors and diagnoses. Um, as far as taking the baseline on pain and function, right, we want to have a baseline so we can establish change over time and understand the effects of our treatment. So there's tons of validated tools out there. Choose the ones that work well for your practice. I'm a big fan, personally, of patient-specific functional scale, but there's many to choose from, so find the right fit for your practice setting and the patients that you are seeing. Um, if you can, if they'll give you the information up front, get that past medical history, the red flag screen done early, um, I would always review that with the patient just to make sure that you all are on the same page and you have the right information uh, when it comes to checking the boxes and making sure the patients understood the questions and you validate that information with them. Get their treatment history. Right? What, what have they done? Where are they on this journey towards their recovery for this condition? And try to help you understand where you're going to fit in, right? How are you going to help them get to the, their ultimate goal? And we don't want to ignore the psychosocial factors. We know those play a big role in our care and ultimately in a person's trajectory when it comes to their recovery. So make sure that you're taking some of those and lots of tools out there. Um, you know, pick the ones that fit best for that patient and best for your practice area. So now we're going to go through, we have our intake information, we have our subjectives. In telehealth, our subjective is probably going to be our best tool. Uh, depending on who you read in the literature, 70 or 80% of the diagnosis is going to come from the information that you got in the subjective. Uh, so don't, don't ignore that. Don't, don't lean on your hands too much as we, we may want to. It's super important that we're very detailed in our subjective. So by way of example, there's a fantastic study done a couple of years ago. Um, this, is, this shouldn't surprise you, the top line, that 75% of the time the diagnosis that someone came to from their subjective exam agree with the, the diagnosis they arrived at after they'd done both their subjective and objective. Now, what's interesting is when they went back, and this study they actually looked at uh, MRI as their gold standard. We can argue whether or not that's the best way to do things, but that's how they did it. Uh, and so when they went back and they looked at the times that it did not agree, half the time the objective exam led the, patient, the clinician down the wrong path. So the clinician actually had the right diagnosis after they asked their subjective questions, and then they did their objective, and they changed their diagnosis. So basically one out of eight patients had an incorrect diagnosis due to the objective finding. So just something to be aware of that this subjective is very powerful and sometimes our objective tests may lead us down the wrong path. So of course, we can do a thorough objective exam over telehealth. That's fairly straightforward. We can always chat with our patients. Things that we need to be aware of, and this is true in the clinic as well, is our words matter. I think they probably matter more when you're separated by a screen. Um, we want to be clear, we want to be concise, and we want to be specific. And sometimes the patient's not going to understand what exactly we're asking, or they may not give us the information that we're seeking. In that case, you know, ask it differently. Demonstrate if you can. Uh, just make sure that you have a clear answer and you have a clear understanding of the answer the patient's giving you, and they have a clear understanding of the question that you're asking. So always clarify. And this other little tidbit, you know, when you're doing telehealth, just the way our devices are set up, it works better if you look at the camera. If you're looking at the patient, which I think is our tendency as humans, our tendency as therapists, it looks to the patient like you're looking down on the screen. If you look at the camera, then it gives the effect, 
and the feeling that you're maintaining eye contact with that patient. Okay, so you did your subjective. Hopefully, at that point, you're you know 80% down that path to getting to your diagnosis and your treatment plan. From there, um, we have limitations with our objective exam. We just can't do everything that we would in the clinic. So we need to shift towards more functional movement assessment. Um, thinking about it in that way, I think, is something that's not new to us. And we watch our patients walk in the clinic. We observe their function. We observe their sit to stand, for example. Um, maybe lean on that a little bit more. Um, the good news is there's good research out there that shows there's a very high level of agreement between a diagnosis that was um, derived in person and one that's derived remotely over telehealth so by just doing a remote subjective and objective exam. So we, we can do this. Um, you know, I know we all like palpation. It's, it's not as great as maybe we think or maybe we believe. Uh, reliability is not fantastic. Uh, the one good thing that comes out is probably symptom provocation. At the end of the day, over telehealth, we can ask our patients to palpate, right? We ask them to show us a, a location where they're having symptoms. We can ask them to palpate a little bit to get some guidance there. Maybe we don't take it to mean the same as when we palpate, but it should give us some insight. Um, and, of course, we can't do everything. So, however, there are some special tests that we could do quite readily, and there's some that we might be able to adapt. And when we adapt the test, I would recommend just interpreting it with caution. So um, in particular, I would think in this situation, like a nearest test would be one where you might not be able to do it quite the same way, but if you do have the patient do it, you may just interpret that result with a little caution and, of course, blend the result you got with information that you had from your subjective and other observations that you were able to take. So here's just an example of some remote tests that you could do um, and just showing their, their qualities. Some of these are actually quite good and quite like Phelan's. It gives you pretty good data, and it's quite easy to reproduce uh, over a telehealth environment. Um, you know, as far as um, other tests we can't do, we can't do our main and muscle tests. We can't do our reflex testing. Um, we can go down a list, right? We can't ask a patient to do a Lachman's on their own knee. In these cases, this is where we recognize that there is some limitation to what we can do in this environment, and what we really need to do is actually change our threshold for referral. And in my mind, we're lowering that, right? So in the clinic, you may, you may see some things. You may be able to test those reflexes, help you rule in or rule out something. In this setting, we can't do that. And if we're suspicious that there's some serious pathology, person's pathology where we need to do these specific tests to help our confidence in the diagnosis, then we need to make a referral to an in-person provider who's going to be able to do those tests and get those answers for the patient. So look, at the end of the day, and I think this is true of in-clinic practice as well, there's always going to be some diagnostic certain uncertainty. And we're going to have to live with that. We have to live with it a little bit more. Uh, in the telehealth world because there's some tests we can't do to improve our certainty. Uh, so in this case, I would say, one, you have to lean on your experience. If you're an experienced therapist, you've seen a number of cases, you have the clinical pattern recognition, you, you know when a patient tells you certain things, you know when a patient moves in a certain way, you have a good feeling that, yes, it's this sort of a diagnosis that I'm, that I'm seeing here. Um, the other thing is lean on statistics and especially Bayesian inference, 
that's the fancy name for it from a, a statistical standpoint, but I think we do this every day. I, I think it helps if we try to put numbers to it in our mind where, you know, so if a patient comes in and they tell you certain information, let's say now there's a 50% chance of a given diagnosis, and then they tell you some other information. So now you should ask yourself, well, is it more or less likely that they have this given diagnosis? And you just repeat that process until you get to a, you know, sufficiently high probability that you feel comfortable proceeding into maybe trial treatment and observing. Um, I also think it's important that we don't ignore who's telling us the information. So age and gender, I think, have a great diagnostic value that's sometimes overlooked. Um, by way of example, let's say now here I'm in California under my shelter in place. If I take up running by myself to, you know, keep myself sane, and I start to develop uh, heel pain, I'm 34. I probably have insertional tendonitis of my Achilles. If this is a 13-year-old kid telling you this, that they started up sport and they're having heel pain, maybe more likely that's Seavers disease. So pay attention to all the data that you're getting and make sure that you're analyzing it. Um, and as Ellen mentioned earlier, you know, with telehealth, we can certainly reach more patients. You know, certainly it's not limited to just the patients that can drive to our clinic. I mean, if you have multiple licenses, you leverage the compact. It's not even limited to patients who just reside in your state now. Um, but I think you need to respect that your personal scope of practice may be reduced relative to those patients that you could treat in person. Uh, okay, so a little bit talking about, great. Now, what about treatment? What about our outcomes? So I, I mentioned earlier this huge study. I applaud these researchers. It's a tremendous amount of work that they put in to come to these conclusions. And I think these super favorable conclusions for physical therapists in general, right? What are the best treatments for musculoskeletal conditions? Well, therapeutic exercise, education for patients on self-management, and psychosocial interventions. So not only are these all things that are in our wheelhouse as physical therapists, these are all things that we can actually deploy effectively over telehealth. Uh, so I think that's tremendous, tremendous evidence to show that we can be effective uh, over a telehealth setting. Now, what about outcomes for telehealth? Um, you know, believe it or not, the research shows that as far as pain and function go, uh, we get about the same result, whether it's in person or it's done over telehealth. In addition, for the patient, it's huge. They're saving about 30 minutes, that's what they report, 30 minutes um, per visit that they attend over health, telehealth compared to in-person care. So just lastly, I just want to put this in perspective in terms of a patient that I actually saw this last year, a uh, 54-year-old man. He was uh, an executive, so he was in the office in meetings a lot, sitting all day, went gardening over the weekend, hurt his back, and so now he's coming to me you know, early in the week. Medical history is unremarkable, no red flags. Uh, you've probably seen this patient before. Transitional movements hurt, sitting at work, really hurts him. You know, he felt better standing, but he also felt awkward standing in his meetings. So he had this sort of battle with his work culture and his personal beliefs about, well, I don't want to stand, so I'm going to, you know, suffer through it. Um, exam, and I'm just, you know, abbreviating this a little bit. He hurt moving all, always with his lower back. However, um, he was particularly apprehensive with flexion. Uh, he did get some relief with extension. And he was an avid golfer, so his big thing was returning to golf. Uh, we had four video visits over six weeks. Um, he was able to complete his home exercise program 31 times, uh, including nine that he completed after uh, he was discharged. And then at the end of the day, right, his functional scale, his pain, 
uh, and satisfaction, all, all numbers that we'd like to see, and he was able to get back on the golf course after six weeks. So just to put this in perspective a little bit different way, the visualization, uh, you can see those orange bubbles there in the pink. Those are our, our chats. Those are times we actually had conversations over our HIPAA-compliant chat platform. So I know four visits may not sound like a lot in six weeks, but there's a lot of interaction that we had over chat that was asynchronous, and it sort of fills in the gaps, right, where we might have had in person, say, you know, six, seven, eight visits perhaps uh, to get the same thing done. We just did a lot of talking asynchronously uh, to get him to the goals that he wanted, and I think you know, when you look at that chart down below, these are both the results that we want as clinicians and that our patients want. So with that, I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to hand it off to my wife here. Samantha, and she's going to talk to you all about pediatric PT. Hi, everyone. I am Samantha Dutra Norwood. I have my PCS, and I'm a senior pediatric PT at Kaiser Santa Clara Medical Center. Uh, I regularly incorporate video visits into my practice, and I'm going to share some tips and tricks that I've learned along the way. So pre-COVID-19 crisis, um, at Kaiser, we actually had the ability to utilize phone and video visits uh, in addition to our in-person visits, kind of that hybrid mode uh, that Ellen discussed earlier. I was doing all of my evaluations in the office and then the hybrid mode um, of the in-office video and phone visits, um, some discussion over secure, our secure messaging platform with my patients. Um, and then some of the uh, patient populations or situations where I have typically used video visits would include patients that are immunocompromised, uh, patients uh, that are on active chemotherapy, cystic fibrosis, similar uh, diagnoses. Um, in addition, parents of just young infants who want to limit their overall exposure to germs and other people in our therapy gym or waiting room or just our busy medical center. Uh, in addition, here in the Bay Area, we have a lot of traffic. Um, and limited parking at our facility, which can cause families to have difficulties making it to appointments on time or maybe even at all uh, with their schedules. Um, children in general have these developmental periods of increased uh, stranger anxiety, which can limit their ability to engage in therapy sessions in our gym, as well as those patients who have had frequent medical appointments with multiple providers or multiple procedures that are painful and scary and can start to develop uh, medical anxiety when coming into or even just seeing our medical facility, which then obviously limits their ability to feel safe and relaxed and want to do um, all the activities and things that I want them to do in their therapy sessions. Um, our gym itself can be busy and loud, as you would imagine, in a pediatric setting, um, and sometimes children who have behavioral issues, auditory processing difficulties, um, kiddos with the autism spectrum diagnosis, sometimes they can become easily overwhelmed, and that can impact what we can accomplish uh, in our sessions. As a pediatric PT, I'm always giving recommendations for how to implement the exercises we're working on in our sessions in their home. And I may say things like, hey, let's try to work on encouraging some sidestepping uh, between surfaces at your house. Do you think your couch is higher or lower than this table that we're using right now? And being able to assess the patient in their home environment during a video visit can give me that real-time feedback onto how high their couch actually is um, to be able to adapt the exercise to work within their home and use whatever they have, furniture, toys, um, to be more effective 
Currently at Kaiser, uh, we're converting all of our rehab appointments over to telehealth via phone or video visits, except for those patients whose function would be significantly impacted. Um, so some of our post-hospital discharge uh, patients or uh, patients post um, certain ortho procedures, et cetera. Uh, we also have access to our secure messaging platform uh, with our patients. I can send them home programs via MedBridge uh, within our EMR. Um, I've also been, you know, mailing certain exercise programs to their house, Brock strings, TheraBands, um, whatever I need to kind of continue their therapy at this time. And just a quick caveat, um, our patients at Kaiser Santa Clara don't have a copay for video or phone appointments, and we don't bill any units of service. Uh, which I completely understand is different than most other clinics and most of the questions uh, coming through at this time. So let's look at some of the considerations and things to think about when conducting a pediatric video visit. Um, if I have the chance to talk to the family on the phone before the video visit, um, it gives me a way to let them know kind of what to expect and how to best prepare for the session. Uh, sometimes it may seem obvious to us, uh, but instructing parents to try and connect to the visit in a place in their house that's comfortable um, with enough space. So I'll maybe say something like, uh, where do you like to do tummy time with your kid? Um, and then I can see either how safe or unsafe that setup might be, or maybe they're not even doing tummy time. Um, I run through the logistics of how they access our video application and then let them know that it's kind of like a FaceTime call. Most people know um, what that's like that they may have with their friend or family members, um, and that I'll be asking uh, them to help me move their child through different positions. So something else to consider is that you may need to have the families adjust their lighting or go to a different area of their home if it's too dark for you to see what you need to observe. Uh, you may need to discourage the use of those loud and obnoxious uh, kids' toys that all kids love. Um, if you're having difficulties having a conversation, with the parents, uh, sometimes that additional background noise um, can cause difficulties. So the quieter rattles, rings, cars may be more conducive uh, to a more productive assessment. Or you may need to pull out those loud toys for encouragement if the, the session's headed south. Uh, but to try and quickly assess kind of what you see in the space and what you could utilize. In addition to seeing kind of what toys would help, you can try um, that you're to use to try and facilitate. Uh, you can take a look at their home setup also. You can ask to see maybe other areas that the kiddo has playtime or other equipment that they may be spending time in. Um, even in my office sessions, parents may use a word like, oh, our kiddo likes using the walker. Um, and some parents may say walker when they mean a push toy, and other parents may use that to describe an extra saucer or something completely different. So being able to see what they actually mean when they're using those words is, is extremely helpful. Um, it also gives you a better idea of ways to tweak your home program to work best in their home. Um, like, oh, that ottoman there seems like it might be the perfect height right now for working on pulling up to sand. Um, I typically use a doll to help model the positions or movements that I want a parent to complete. It can want a parent to complete uh, in a funny order of events. My next topic is to talk about limitations. Uh, as we all just witnessed, technology is one of those limitations that you will run into in telehealth, um, especially right now in this COVID-19 crisis uh, and 
uh, as you can see on this talk today, we had a lot of traffic. We have a lot of traffic on our video platform um, as well with so many patients, providers, and physicians uh, at our medical center connect, uh, connecting at the same time, which has caused slowness uh, with the video visits. Uh, patients sometimes run into difficulties with their ability to navigate our video application. Um, I try to let my patients know ahead of time that I'll connect to the video visit a few minutes early, and if I don't see them within five minutes or so after our scheduled start time, I'll give them a call to try and troubleshoot. Uh, limited audio and video quality can be frustrating both as a patient and as a provider um, or as a PT in a telehealth webinar. Uh, you may need to troubleshoot how to improve the connection on your end or the patient's end, whether that's refresh, refreshing the platform or reconnecting um, or having a phone visit if no other option is working at that moment. So having their contact information on hand is useful. Sometimes uh, we may think that a certain developmental position or direction that we're giving makes perfect sense to us, uh, but may be completely lost on a patient, which happens in the clinic also. Uh, they may also have difficulties getting the child into that position while also being able to maintain an appropriate camera angle for you to see what the child is doing. Uh, encouraging families to prop their phone or iPad on something stable if there's not another parent around to assist. Um, if older siblings are present, you may be able to recruit them as your assistant, make a big deal about it. Uh, they get to be your special helper um, to help you with the session or to be the camera person. If your patients are non-English speakers and you aren't fluent in their preferred language, uh, it can be challenging to conduct a video visit, and you can run into difficulties getting interpreters to connect. Um, and if you have that ability, that can create some additional audio and visual delay that you may, and you may not have that uh, capability or option in your setup in your clinic. Uh, so having a plan in place uh, for those patients. Just like in the clinic, you run into the same issue that kids are kids, and just because you have a video visit scheduled at 11.15 doesn't mean that they're going to cooperate at 11.15. Uh, they may have missed their nap, hungry, fussy, or just kind of having one of those days, um, and your session may need to continue at another time or in another way. Uh, the same limitation that the other speakers have already presented and will continue to present, that you don't have the, the hands-on assessment. Um, you're not the one taking them through that passive range, assessing tone, um, picking up those catches or clunks with certain motions, eliciting clonus, um, palpating lumps or nodules. Uh, it may take some creativity as to how to assess some of these things in other ways. Uh, it may require that you bring them in to the clinic um, or to refer them to another provider as needed. So now let's look at two different case examples which highlight uh, different ways to think about using pediatric video visits. The first is a four-month-old uh, with a diagnosis of torticollis, and he's pictured here with his parents and his super cool shades. Uh, the patient was originally scheduled on my schedule for an in-person evaluation, and the family decided to switch it to a video visit. Um, it was kind of right when all the COVID-19 concerns were starting. We didn't have uh, shelter-in-place uh, hadn't started yet, but the family was, was worried about it. Um, this was actually the first evaluation I had ever done over a video visit. Um, as previously, I was using the videos for follow-up sessions kind of in that hybrid model. Uh, the parents were concerned with the uh, child's head shape and his ongoing occasional right tilt that you can uh, see in the picture. 
Uh, I did my typical subjective exam that I would conduct in the clinic. We talked about the patient's birth and delivery history, uh, talked about feeding, holding, play positions, time spent playing in prone, sleep position, time they're noticing a preference, et cetera. Um, I observed the patient playing and the positions he was getting into on the parent's bed as we were talking. Um, I asked the family to place him in other developmental positions to assess and demonstrate what I wanted them to do uh, with the doll on my end. Um, his play mat was next to their bed, so they transitioned him down to that space, uh, which obviously was a lot safer than doing all of this on their bed. Um, so I could walk them through some additional positions, active range of motion, look at his head shape, et cetera. Uh, the parents reported that he hated tummy time during our subjective exam, um, as we all hear as pediatric PTs. Um, but ironically, he stayed in prone throughout most of our discussion as he was motivated by the video call or the screen or my face or all of the above, which I guess is both good and bad. Um, I sent them a home program via our online program in our EMR and mailed some additional uh, pictures to their house. Uh, he had a video follow-up with me this past week. He's made great progress since his evaluation. We were able to practice and review some new exercises, and I'll follow up with him again uh, with video visits uh, in this COVID-19 crisis. The other case example um, is a 26-month 26 26 uh, female with a complicated medical history, including central hypotonia, cleft palate, hearing difficulties, uh, global developmental delays, and she's being worked up for a potential um, autism spectrum diagnosis. Um, she's a patient that comes to me from a previous PT who had retired. Uh, I was seeing her um, for in-office visits. Uh, she's a, she was a tall knee walker, and she was very fast, extremely proficient at it, and her desire to learn to stand and walk on her own uh, was limited. Um, we were making progress, albeit slow, um, and then she became extremely ill and was in and out of the hospital for extended stays. And upon discharge from the hospital, she developed such strong medical anxiety that mom would say that as soon as they pulled off of the highway um, onto the road that goes to our medical center, she would become agitated and upset. Um, our sessions turned into the patient crying from the moment I got her from the waiting room. Um, our support staff knew when she was entering the building because they could hear her down the hall uh, to the moment that they pulled into the driveway and got home. Uh, mom would also frequently become upset and cry during our sessions as she was overwhelmed uh, and wanted her daughter to progress but could see that these PT sessions were becoming counterproductive in addition to just finding time and days that worked with her busy and chaotic work schedule. Uh, we decided to try a video uh, visit to see if that would help with some of this medical anxiety. Um, I didn't want this anxiety to transfer over into like a fear association uh, with walking and standing um, outside of even the PT visits. Uh, Throughout the time during our office appointments, we would talk about ways to encourage the patient to try and stand with less support, take steps, um, all the things that you would normally do. Um, when I connected that first time to our first video visit, it became instantly clear that there were many other barriers involved. Uh, the family was in a very small apartment, uh, and they were using large, those large, clear storage tubs um, throughout the house to store items stacked up. Um, and even so, even if my patient wanted to take steps on her own, uh, she wouldn't be able to go more than one or two steps before she had a really motivating surface to hold on to uh, and not have to take further steps on her own. So we were able to troubleshoot ways to have a better space for the patient to practice, utilize a hallway where she could be more successful, 
and motivated to take bigger steps. She was making great progress with the video visits and then sadly had a freak accident on a playground with her family um, and had a pretty bad tibial fracture. Uh, she had some, some issues with some ill-fitting casts uh, and the trauma associated with the injury, getting these multiple casts put on, take off. Uh, she had a pretty big developmental regression and went back to the knee walking. Um, so between some additional other family stressors, uh, we weren't able to reconnect with the video visits, uh, but I was able to send her mom some additional videos and exercises of things I recommended her to try uh, from my end. And in a happy turn of events, she sent me an email last week of a video of uh, her walking down the sidewalk outside their house the day before mom's birthday, which was one of those moments that you cherish as a PTPT and wouldn't have happened if I wasn't able to see their home set up in that video as mom just kind of saying, oh, you know what, her apartment is just small. It's hard for her to take steps. Um, so thank you all for listening, and thanks for hanging in there. Hi, my name is Sarah Gallagher, and I am the owner of South Valley Physical Therapy in Denver, Colorado, and we have been providing telehealth services in our practice for about three years now. We are a specialty practice, neurologic, with a focus on vestibular therapy. So I wanted to share a little bit about how we, or how I got involved in telehealth. Um, I have a photo or a still of a video visit with a patient here. Um, and she came to our clinic after a fall in the parking lot of her work on the way into her work and developed severe vertigo, imbalance, and dizziness. She worked with a physical therapist in her area for uh, about six months with uh, some gains and then was referred on to us as more of a specialty clinic. However, we are located two and a half hours down a canyon from her home, and so her husband, um, to bring her to her, her visit, had to coordinate taking the day off from his work in order to drive her to her initial evaluation. So she was so dizzy on that initial evaluation that we could hardly perform many tests and measures. Um, she was a trooper, but it was just a real challenge for her. And in fact, on their return visit two and a half hours back up the canyon, she had to stop three times in, in order to pull over and vomit. So she was a clear candidate for somebody who coming to the clinic um, was a barrier for her. It was a barrier for her husband who had to take an entire day off. She couldn't drive herself. Um, she was so dizzy that she wouldn't be able to get much out of the therapy sessions in general. Um, you know, in, in our clinic, we hear so many stories like this person, um, this, this patient of they can't get rides or they're too dizzy to drive, they're too dizzy in the clinic to participate fully. Um, and so they're, and, and coming in from other states or long distances can really be a barrier to access specialized care. So that's where the idea of implementing telehealth into our clinic came from. It was really a, a problem we, we saw for many of our patients in our practice setting, and telehealth gave us the opportunity to solve that problem and improve access. Um, we have been providing telerehab for about two years for insurance reimbursement um, and 
more like three years for insurance reimbursement. However, there was a long, long process of implementation, and I'll come back to that a little bit in my presentation. So although we've been providing those services for uh, nearly three years, it was a long process of development and rolling that out. Um, so I did also want to share that in our clinic, we are a physical clinic, and so most of our patient care is provided in the clinic, and a smaller portion of our care is provided via telehealth, but we transitioned about two weeks ago to uh, nearly 100% telehealth because we did not feel that we could maintain a safe environment um, for our, our volume of patients and our staff. So we were able to transition as many patients as we could that were eligible under their insurance contracts and our insurance contracts. And that's what, what we're doing to solve our, our issue right now. Um, so I wanted to just tell you a little bit about the setup. This presentation is more focused on um, how you use telehealth in your practice. So uh, looking at the provider here with the desk lamp, thinking about having yourself well lit from the front and not backlit so your patient can see you well, making sure that you're in a secure space with non-patient um, information behind you so an office might not be or your office at work might not be the appropriate space, um, making sure that you are have adequate uh, eye contact with your patient, so looking at the camera, not the patient, using a mobile device where you can move the, the camera, so if you want to demonstrate something or take them to a different piece of equipment or area in the space that you can mobilize that camera. And then looking at the patient setup here, um, also recommend a mobile device when it's available so that they can take you into different areas of their home, um, different locations might be more suited. Perhaps you want to evaluate um, their ergonomics of their uh, desk setup or how they're doing their exercises in the basement. So it really helps to have a mobile device there. And again, you need to make sure that they are well lit so you can monitor them as closely as possible. It is often quite helpful to have another person to manage the camera. I especially like this when I'm doing um, gait analysis and gait training, which is a big part of um, our practice. And again, in selecting your space, you want to think about uh, good audio. So we have a private room in our clinic for doing telehealth um, and also keeping the patients in uh, privacy um, so that they're not out in an open space with the rest of your clientele or disclosing that to them if you are. So I also wanted to share some of the clinical decision-making and how to adapt our examinations. In our practice, we try to uh, bring the patient in for the initial evaluation and and in most cases, we can do that, but there are some cases where we have to perform the initial evaluation via telehealth, so that's our, our second choice. Um, but we do like to bring them into the clinics. Um, logistically, it makes it easier for intake paperwork, confirming their identity, um, doing a full evaluation, gathering all the baseline testing and data that you, you're wanting to gather. Um, but this is how we adapt our tests when we're either doing a, 
evaluation or retesting over telehealth. So um, this is where live video might be more helpful, but if you're thinking about your ocular exam, I look at saccades by having the patient come fairly close to the screen, and then I hold my two fingers up and have them look uh, finger to finger as a screen for saccades. Um, I do the same thing by having them follow my finger so that I can watch for smooth pursuits. For virgins, I have the patient bring their own finger towards their nose and tell me when it becomes double and then ask them the approximate distance their finger is from the bridge of their nose. Uh, for VOR, I obviously can't do a head thrust test via video, so what I do in that case is have the patient hold their thumb in front of their face look at how in focus there is uh, with their thumb, how in focus their thumb is, and then I instruct them to start moving their head. I might use a metronome for a specific speed or just cue them, have them continue to look at their thumb and tell me is it in the same focus that it was when, you, when your head was stable. And then also you want to go back to, as, as Todd and Sam both spoke to, their subjective. So if somebody is, is subjectively telling you my vision is bouncy when I walk or run, that's, that's um, giving you a lot of information that it could be uh, a VOR that's not adapted. So we treat quite a lot of BPV in our clinic, and we also treat it via telehealth. So obviously you can't use goggles via telehealth. And so what we do, because we have treated so much BPV and um, for many years did not use video goggles, we developed a skill set of observation when we could not see nystagmus in the clinic. So let's say the patient was fixing or the amplitude of their nystagmus was so small, then we couldn't use nystagmus. Well, we had to evaluate um, their subjective symptoms and does it match the position and canal of the provocation test that they're in, ruling out the other canals. We have them gaze to dif in different directions to try to pull out um, more nystagmus and to decrease their, their fixation. So there's a lot of tricks there as sort of expert BPV clinicians that we have used, and we use that in our telehealth setting as well. And then if we reposition them and it does not seem to be successful, we certainly have them come into the clinic for a goggle assessment um, and make that decision based on how, how they're doing. Um, we feel very comfortable treating BPV over telehealth and, in, and giving patients um, the, the maneuvers that they need, but this may not be in your scope, um, especially if you don't treat a lot of BPV. Balance testing, left out some, some letters there, balance testing, so adapting this here um, again, this is where another person using the camera can be really helpful. In this case, there wasn't another person, but um, I used in this case uh, her husband to guard her in the camera uh, in the corner when we first started using a, a corner or a counter and, and a safe setup for her to provide some balance. Uh, work. This particular patient was at high risk for falls when in her initial evaluation and determined that she still met the criteria for telehealth in our scope of practice. 
and that this uh, that we would need to be experts in uh, modifying her her testing and interventions. So started out with this patient with a lot of orientation in space of her head with her eyes closed while she was at, while she was sitting, and then moved to no back support. Eventually moved to the corner with guarding, moving eventually to feet together, eyes closed, as you see in this picture here. Uh, gate training, I like to use hallways when available, and again, like to use someone um, so that I can see multiple angles of the patient or zoom in on a specific portion of their uh, gate. Um, sensation, my spell check did not help me out here, sorry. <laughs> so sensation is very difficult to evaluate over uh, telehealth, so I would uh, suggest that if it's something that you need more evaluation for to bring the patient into the clinic, same with, with tone if you're looking at tone. But some of the things that you're thinking of is, is asking for numbness and tingling. Um, the, if, if the patient puts their feet together with their eyes open and they have an increase um, in loss of balance, that might point towards a peripheral neuropathy, looking at their comorbidities of what might be causing a sensation uh, problem there. Um, and then we uh, talked a bit about strength and range of motion. And then, again, I'm not sure what happened with my <laughs> spell check here, but this should say functional activities. <laughs> and um, really, I use this probably the most in my telehealth sessions is watching people, how they interact with their home environment and um, looking at how they have maladapted or co compensated. So very functional approach. Okay, so limitations. I think that my presentation um, was spell checked in French. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure what happened when it imported here. So there are obvious limitations to doing vestibular therapy over uh, telehealth. You can't use the goggles. You can't touch the patient. So we developed criteria in our telehealth policies and procedures for appropriate screening. Um, we make sure that our, our therapists are competent. We do lots of simulations, tech uh, training, making sure that they're feeling comfortable, we have backup plans for our technology, um, make sure that they practice using verbal instructions because they can't use their, their hands. And then we have in our policy and procedures safety and emergency plans as well. So if you're thinking about if this person had a sudden heart attack, we have already confirmed their location and, and can send out 911. And we also have an emergency contact in every documentation as well. So speaking of documentation, <laughs> so um, we, we, there is not specific criteria for documentation of what we have to put in our documentation, but some of the criteria that we developed in our practice was that uh, documents that the services were provided via te telehealth, uh, the reason for providing it telehealth, provider location, patient location, name of the uh, participants in the session and their role, just as you would document if the patient was in clinic. And then in the assessment, addressing whether there were any limitations or barriers if the patient um, is continued to be appropriate for tele-rehab or if you want to transition them back into the clinic, for example. 
So I have a case example here. I'm just going to be really brief with it. This is a patient that we saw um, a very long time via tele-rehab, um, but it was spaced out. It was more like on a monthly basis that we saw her. And um, you can see here, especially her balance measures greatly improved. Although her dizziness handicap was quite high, her balance greatly improved and her function actually greatly improved. So she was back to driving. She was looking for work. She was back to doing cooking and cleaning. She was going out in social events. She was working out every single day, which is something that we started on her in her home um, instead of going to a gym on a home exercise bike. So she had quite a significant change of function despite the significant uh, dizziness rating subjectively. So I wanted to just take a minute, um, and um, there were a lot of questions in the chat about reimbursement, and we are a clinic that does have uh, insurance reimbursement, or we have for the last several years. And there is no out-of-the-box solution for how to bill, um, what to bill, and who's going to pay for it, and what they're going to pay, unfortunately. So as I mentioned, this was a long process, and we worked with our insurance providers, our insurance contracts, to make sure that we could provide telehealth with them and that we would not be in violation of our provider contract with insurance companies. Uh, we have every single patient verify whether they have telehealth benefits before they even it, before we ever even determine whether they're a telehealth patient or not so that if we want to convert them for some reason for example maybe they're sick or they can't get time off work then they are but they're able to do a telehealth session so there again there's just no out of the box I know everyone's scrambling right now to figure out how to implement this you just you have to do your research which means reaching out to all of your insurance providers and asking them, um, do how do we are, do you have documentation um, uh, requirements? What codes can we use? Do you have any limitations? Are there modifiers that we need? Anything? Any other billing changes? Can we provide these services? And the HPA section has. Um, worked on a template for asking these questions to insurance providers, which if it's not posted yet, should be posted in the next few days. So it is um, a great resource for calling your insurance contracts. But again, remember, even if you can provide telehealth in your service, in your state, and you, your insurance company says that you're allowed to provide it, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily included in the patient's individual plan. So there's a lot of legwork that goes into treating every single telehealth patient um, when we're talking about insurance reimbursement. So it is not a quick, quick solution, um, unfortunately, in this crisis. But if you're willing to kind of put that research in, uh, work on your policies and procedures, your training, uh, your safety, your compliance, and then start testing it out, doing some treatments, and then you start revising your procedures. And um, that is where I will leave you off today and turn it over to Kristen. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. Um, let me just advance the slide here. Hi, everyone. My name is Kristen Tate. Um, I'm the Director of Enterprise Operations at Agile Physical Therapy. 
We are a private clinic in Northern California, but we also have a number of corporate partnerships that I help manage. Um, I've been working in telehealth for over two years, worked with Todd and Fazera um, for that amount of time as well. Um, I started our telehealth program at Agile as well as a clinician tra training program um, that we offer. Um, I am eight and a half months pregnant, so my lung capacity is low, just in case you hear me kind of breathing heavy. Um, so I'm certified for women's health as well as orthopedics, but today I'm going to be talking about pelvic floor PT in a telehealth environment. Um, obviously, there's advantages, and we've each of the speakers have spoken to these advantages in some capacity, so I'll kind of briefly touch on them. But for, and I think I saw some pelvic floor PTs in the chat a little bit, so um, for those pelvic floor PTs that do internal work, you know, we've all had that patient that potentially isn't comfortable with the internal work, so it's great for telehealth to be a non-invasive. It takes that option off the table and can make a lot of patients a lot more comfortable. Um, it's also postpartum friendly for those with kids. I've seen a lot of new moms that can't leave the house and they sit there with their baby in um, you know, a, a bassinet or whatnot and we have the visit um, with the baby right there. So it's very um, convenient. We have a lot of research talking about its effectiveness as well as kind of some of the stuff that Todd presented on. Um, there's some research that it increases a sense of autonomy for the patient to have control over their symptoms as well as the exercises. Obviously, the convenience is a huge factor as well. And this is not research. This is just my opinion, but I think that it really helps um, build a greater mind-body connection between the patient and their their symptoms and the and their body. So that's just from the years I've been treating pelvic floor patients um, via telehealth. So as far as triaging goes, um, like Ellen mentioned, not all cases are appropriate for telehealth. There's a lot of complex pelvic floor cases that you might evaluate them via telehealth. I personally believe that everybody can be evaluated via telehealth, and it's kind of from that evaluation that you would decide if they need to be seen in person for a follow-up or if they could be seen in uh, via telehealth for their next visit. So some of these pelvic floor cases that are more complex would be like a post-prostatectomy with poor pelvic floor muscle awareness, non-relaxing pelvic floor, a high-risk pregnancy. And again, these I've seen non-relaxing pelvic floor. I've seen post-prostatectomy patients. It doesn't mean you can't see them. You just have to use your best clinical judgment. And like Ellen talked about, or, or maybe it was Todd, about your personal scope, about what you feel comfortable treating and what's going to be best for the patient. We all, we've all treated those patients that have really poor muscle awareness, and especially in pelvic PT. Those are the ones that you might say, you know, I think you'll do better in person. So on that evaluation, if you feel like they, you know, potentially would be better in an in-person setting, you can still do a lot of stuff via telehealth, education, advice on bladder, diet, activity, postpartum advice. There's tons of things we can offer these people that research shows they still get a high amount of satisfaction from the visit providing these things. Um, like Ellen mentioned, a thorough subjective 
is really, really important, especially in pelvic PT. I think a lot of pelvic floor therapists um, are very used to using their hands. And under the residency that I did a, a few years ago, you know, using your hands was basically essential. And so I kind of had to learn to rely more on my subjective. Um, one example of this would be a non-relaxing pelvic floor patient that I had seen years ago. Through his subjective, you could just really glean that he was super stressed. He was having difficulty evacuating stool. Um, he was having urinary symptoms and sexual dysfunction symptoms that really pointed toward non-relaxing pelvic floor, um, which we were able to later confirm with a doctor. However, I, I, I said, this is, this is what I think is going on, and we tried some strategies to reduce that tone, and it, he immediately started seeing improvement in his symptoms. And so I think, again, while the complex pelvic floor cases may or may not be treatable, it really could be about how, how you approach the case as well. So here's some just like tips and tricks that I've found over treating via telehealth that you can have the patient very, very involved. I know a lot of pelvic floor therapists are used to doing internal exams, um, but you can see laying down, they can put their finger on their bubble spongiosis and practice some Kegels, and you can have a full session talking about what they're feeling. Are they feeling their glutes activate? Um, how much excursion are they actually, you know, being able to feel with their finger? You can advance them to seated and having put their own hand on their coccyx to feel flexion extension with the pelvic floor squeeze. And then eventually moving them to standing, help facilitate, facilitating the pelvic floor contraction with internally rotated feet and a hand on their coccyx. And this is kind of where I get back to that first slide about the mind-body connection. It's like they're feeling their muscles work, and that's a really powerful thing, and it can give them a lot of autonomy over what's going on. And, like, I can control these muscles. I can feel them working. Um, and I found that this is a really very powerful tool that I it's harder to use in person because people expect the touch in person. So when I'm able to successfully do this via telehealth, it's very powerful for the patient. Um, functional testing from a pelvic floor perspective, I do a lot of hip range of motion with yogi squats and laying down knee to chest, figure four, getting an idea of their pelvic flexibility. Um, for testing strength, we do squats and single leg squats depending on their level of function to get an idea of how much power and endurance they have in their hips. Um, these are some at-home tools that I've recommended to patients. Um, the one on the left is expensive. It's fancy. It's inserted vaginally. Um, it measures the amount of power and strength that your uh, pelvic floor is creating. Um, the one on the right is not fancy, but it's free via the Apple um, you know, app store, and it is, you don't insert anything vaginally. It just is a tool to track um, and help build compliance for the patient and their HEP. So it basically just measures um, and times your Kegel out, and you can kind of set your exact exercise plan as you want it. So I found it very useful for patients who don't want to spend money, yet there's a handful of people that want to spend, you know, $120, $150 on a device, and, and this is what I recommend. Um, so I just wanted to briefly discuss a 2019 case report of 
patient experiences via telehealth for pelvic floor therapy. Sorry, some of the um, text got cut off on the right side, but it was in the Journal of Women's Health Physical Therapy. And as you can see from the summary, um, they, they tracked three participants and kind of tracked their satisfaction, which ended up being really, really high at the end of the study. And I liked this chart because it really broke down what each session entailed. So you can see the initial session started with informed consent. It went through a very detailed medical history. Um, they did, you know, assessment of an abdominal curl up and education on postpartum posture and pelvic floor muscle activation. And then for each of them, there was a detailed teaching of their home exercise program. So there was, um, and then you can kind of see as they move on through visit two, three, and four, what each of them did. So you can just see that there's a very robust um, you can have a very robust session via telehealth that, again, is very successful and highly um, satisfies the patient at the end of the, of the um, course of care. This is another um, research study done in 2003 looking more at outcomes. So they concluded that the primary outcomes were similar between in-person and telehealth, and actually the secondary outcomes the internet-based treatment, which is what they called telehealth, was actually more effective. So if you can look at the primary outcomes, you have symptom score, um, condition-specific quality of life, um, and then the secondary outcomes were the patient global impression of improvement, incontinence aids, patient satisfaction, quality of life, and then incontinence episode frequency. So those are really powerful secondary outcomes that they found were actually more effective in a telehealth environment. And I just think that that is so cool and so important for us to um, convey to our patients that this is actually a really effective form of care, even for pelvic floor where a lot of traditional pelvic floor is done um, using your hands, but doesn't necessarily have to be, to be just as effective and just as satisfying, if not more. Um, so just a summary, I mean, Again, like the other presenters have touched upon, there's a lot, there are potential problems. Access, um, kind of like Sarah said, um, you know, we, I had a patient one time drive four hours. She would spend the night in Palo Alto and then come see me the next day, four hours to, for a 45 minute appointment. I mean, that, that's just crazy. So, um, you know, that sort of issue is solved with telehealth. Um, also, access to women's health PTs, um, technology, reimbursement. Obviously, you guys have a ton of questions about that. But the, the problems that are not really there and that the research supports are satisfaction, outcomes, and effectiveness. And I think we really need to be on the front line of conveying these, um, these outcomes to our patients and work, obviously, be working on the potential problems, but as we move along in this, are becoming less and less um, big barriers as we move forward. So I hope you guys can take some of these practical advice for your pelvic floor practice. Um, and yeah, thank you for your time. It does appear as though we are getting ready to sign off here. I, I can't thank you all everyone who has attended as well as our presenters. This has been very informative and I hope that, um, that everybody will get a chance to watch the recording again if you need it and the, um, 
the, all of the links that are in the chat will be available in the Learning Center for uh, uh, quick, quick reference when, um, tomorrow morning, no later than tomorrow morning. So thank you. Thank you all again. I really, really appreciate your patience and your understanding during this time. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 outbreak continues to evolve. APTA set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.